It's amazing to be with our church family any given Sunday, but this morning I'm just so thankful as we're reading scripture together. Um, I'm so thankful for a church that just loves God's word and makes it a regular part of our time together. So, you know, just reading God's word out loud together is not just a formality to fill space. Like it, it, it's us together collectively declaring uh, that these truths mean a lot to us. And not only do they mean a lot to us, but we believe them. And so just listening to our congregation and one unified voice reading uh, that scripture together was just particularly encouraging to me today. So thank you, church family, that you love God's word. If you're visiting with us, hopefully you're seeing that we have a huge love and desire for God's word as the authoritative guide, and we dive into it. And so what we have been doing over the last couple of weeks um, is following Jesus on the last week of his life. That last week of Jesus' life, sometimes it's called Passion Week, sometimes referred to as Holy Week. It's not uncommon for a church or Christians to take the actual last week of Jesus' life leading up into Easter and take each of those days and read the account and think through that. We just uh, decided we're going to take the seven weeks before Easter and take each day and just kind of walk with Jesus for a few moments. Um, it simply just cannot be wrong of us to look at Jesus <laughs> and to see what he is doing in that last week of his life. We are actually on Tuesday today. Now, Tuesday has a lot of uh, occurrences, and so hopefully we'll be able to make sense of that in our time together today. So we're making this long journey into Resurrection Sunday by just walking through Jesus' life. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 22, and as you turn there, let me just kind of get you up to speed. We began last week, if you remember, if you weren't here, last week we saw the tension rise between Jesus and um, not just any old people, but the tension rises between Jesus and those who thought they had things figured out. The, the tension is actually with people who had all the rights, had all the privileged information. Those who knew of God's faithfulness had heard of God's faithfulness over the years. Inevitably, they'd heard story after story after story of God's faithfulness leading to his ultimate salvation. And so these are no ordinary people, but Jesus and those folks we saw last week, tension begins to grow. Now this week, that tension is only going to get greater. Now, last week, Jesus goes into the temple, if you remember, and what he finds is he finds a people who on the surface, that well, they seem to be close to God, yet they could not be farther in their hearts. The temple put on display just how much God's people needed Jesus. Whether they liked it or not, whether they are seeing it, the temple literally is a test case and puts on display just how much they need Jesus, just how much they need God to remain faithful to his promises. Because see, the temple put on display the tendency that people have to go through the motions, yet not see the truth that is in the motion. 
And what we are learning and what Jesus pointed out is not only the truth that is in the activity, but the truth that ultimately is pointing to Jesus, who is right in front of them. Well, this temple scene, it kind of, it, it, not kind of, it prompts Jesus <laughs> to teach about faith. We saw that last week and go back and listen to that. It, uh, it, Jesus teaches that faith is essential for obedience. Trust in God is apparently what breeds long-term obedience. And this seems to be why the temple has gotten so out of whack, if you will. See, the temple just simply shows the hearts. And this fig tree incident showed the results. The temple puts on display the heart. This interaction with the fig tree shows the results. What is that? No faith, no fruit. A lot of leaves, but no fruit. Faith is essential to God's people. Trust in God is what breeds long-term obedience. But the fig tree also showed judgment will come. It's, it's very clear what Jesus is doing. But it's also very clear that what he's doing is calling them to trust him. Now, this incident of the temple and the fig tree, temple puts on the heart, fig tree shows the results. This leads into a bunch of teaching through parables on Tuesday, right? So if that's Monday, we move into Tuesday. And this all that he has interacted uh, with the temple and, and seeing all this, this fig tree incident, it leads into Tuesday where there is lengthy teaching. And all these teachings are through parables. But you see, what is happening at this point, the religious ones are beginning to question Jesus, specifically about his authority. Here's what they're saying. Who do you think you are? Now, maybe I put my little spin on it to sound like a child, but this is what they're saying. Who do you think you are coming in here, doing all of these wonderful things? Yes, I said wonderful things because that is exactly how they describe it. Who do you think you are coming up in here and doing all these wonderful things? Stirring up hope. And here's the real thing that they have a problem with, acting like you are God. Who gave you the right to do these things? Well, this questioning leads to Jesus as a masterful teacher to teach more. And therefore, in this teaching, what, he, what I hope you're going to see by the end of our time is going to make plain who he is and what he is doing. But it's also going to make plain of, once again, where they are at. You see, the end of chapter 21, all the way to chapter 25, is Jesus' teaching. But this teaching is absolutely confronting their lack of faith. Specifically, the lack of trust in him, which ultimately is a lack of trust in God's Faithfulness, a lack of trust of God's provision who is standing right in front of them. 21 to 25 is full of teaching after teaching, confrontation after confrontation. You see, there's a series of parables that start in 21, they go to 22. 
And these series of parables, they teach about the kingdom of God. Primarily, what they are doing, they are putting before those listening who is actually a part of the kingdom of God. So we'll see over and over again the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's doing with all of these parables is to show, oh, you want to know who is actually a part of the kingdom of God? Well, it's, it's these people. But see, after that series of parables, because, you know, we get all the way up to 25, it's a long day. After the series of parables in, in 21 and 22, Jesus gets questioned some more. What do you think you are? They're trying to catch him and trick him. And now this questioning you probably guessed this questioning leads to, yes, Jesus' teaching. <laughs> Jesus, again, teaching, but the subject matter is really interesting. The second set of questioning that leads to teaching, the teaching is focused on how things will go in the end, what we like to call eschatology, how things are going to go in the end. That's the subject matter after that second questioning. And then that does move into parables, but those parables, once again, about final judgment, what to do. And then he ends chapter 25 with a very clear application of everything that he has been doing. Everything that he has been saying will be summed up in chapter 25. And here it is. If you don't listen to me, you're going to miss the kingdom of God because of your obstinate hearts. That, that's where he lands the plane. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like this. These are the people who are a part of it. And it's so crucial because here's how it's going to go down in the end. And here he wraps up with a very clear, clear application. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss the kingdom of God. And it's going to be because of your obstinate hearts. Now, we're going to tackle this long day. That's kind of some handles for you to see how it works. But we're going to tackle this long day of teaching by looking at the wedding feast. I believe the, the wedding feast really summarizes really well all the parables. And then we're going to end by reading that last section of 25. I think it'll be productive for us today. But hopefully you have ears to hear this morning. Hopefully you have hearts sensitive to receive from God's word this morning. Tuesday is a long work for Jesus, but it is so wonderful. So chapter 22 is the wedding feast. So we're going to read 22 uh, verses 1 to 14 to serve kind of at a, a summary of what Jesus is doing, okay? Chapter 22, 1 to 14, follow along in your Bibles or to be up on the screen for you. And again, Jesus spoke. See, again, he's been teaching here for a while. He spoke to them in parables. Here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves, and have all been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, 
another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Verse 7, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main rows and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the rows and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Don't you love parables? Rich and dense. We could spend hours just talking about all the wonderful, glorious things and terrifying things. But here, when you're looking at a parable, oftentimes there's several characters that are representing something. And here in this parable, there are several characters that represent God, Israel, and those who are actually a part of the kingdom of God. You see, the king, God, calls the people who have been invited, Israel, or even more specifically, the religious elite. God calls them, the king calls them to come to the long-awaited wedding feast. You, you have the invitation, come, it is, it is ready. The preparations are done. No longer do they need to wait. The only thing left is to come and feast. But they refuse. They reject the invitation. So the king, God, sends other servants to announce the news of the wedding feast. Perhaps it wasn't clear. Perhaps they didn't understand what was awaiting them. The feast is here. It is ready. The table is set. Please come enjoy. I mean, here's how the text puts it. Matthew 22, verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. Come, enjoy. Everything is done. 
those who have been invited, who have been called to the feast, pay no attention. They go about their lives, while some of them seize the servants sent by the king. And these servants were sent by the king to offer an invitation from the king. They seize these servants and they treat them shamefully and they kill them. This rightly causes the king to respond to their rejection. Not only their rejection, but their evil acts with righteous judgment. Now, I suspect, even as we're reading this and spending the amount of time in church, it's not hard here to get the overall feel, right, of what is actually being said here. You see, it is abundantly clear that God had been pursuing those invited to come enjoy the feast. But it was met with multiple rejections. What are they invited to? Well, the feast is being put forward as a representative of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, it is like the wedding feast. What is the feast? It is those who live under the rule and reign of God, those who are feasting with the king. They are being called to come enjoy the long-awaited kingdom of God. It is now. It is in front of them. Come, enjoy, for God has made all the preparations. See the emphasis? It's ready. It's prepared. Trust. Come, enjoy. It seems here that maybe that first call could be alluding to the prophets of old. Maybe the second call could be their current moment to respond to God, to heed the call, to say, hey, every, it's, it's right there. Come enjoy all that God has done. You know, the extra detail of the mistreatment of God's servants surely, surely reminds them how representatives of God had been treated in the past, and we know it certainly alludes to how his son's going to be treated in the near future. The main point here, brothers and sisters and those visiting with us, the main point here is to come to the feast. The preparations are made. It is happening right in front of you. Let me put it more plainly. The point is, trust God. <laughs> Preparations are made in Christ. Come in faith and feast upon the provisions of God in his Son. That is what is plainly and unmistakably being said here. Trust me. God is saying, trust my provision. It is indeed in Christ. Come in faith and feast upon the provision that he will provide. Come. The wedding is now. But what is clear is the means of becoming 
the children of God is in Christ. Now this wedding feast and this call and this moment to come in joy is actually really good news. The king is inviting you to, to, to come. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. Come feast with me. This is good news. What is staggering is that call, that good news, to come and joy, this invitation that is given to them, it is all being met with rejection. That's the surprise moment. That's the difficulty with this. How, how, are, you, how are you rejecting? Everything's done. Just, just come in faith and trust what I am doing. Everything being offered before them, specifically in Christ, right? He's teaching. All of it's being met with rejection. Well, this is costly to them. And this rejection brings judgment. You see, that's what is at stake here. And that's what makes parables so helpful for them to gain some clarity. There's at one point through this large section that it says they start to go, oh, he's talking about us. Oh, he means us, the ones who, who had all of this information and, and, and knew of God's faithfulness. He's trying to look at them and say, here's what is at stake. It is loss of feasting with God. Loss of all that you've been waiting for, all that you have been longing for. It is slipping through your fingers. That is what is at stake. To lose feasting with God. The call to come and enjoy the feast. This call is now turned to an order of total destruction. Did, did you catch that? The call to come enjoy the feast is now turned to an order of total destruction. Well, there's a lot at stake at rejecting God's provision. So at the rejection of those who have been invited, destruction comes. But the king, God, does something odd. He invites others. And what's so fascinating about this invite, it goes out to all the unlikely ones. And now I'm a big fan of the descriptor, both good and bad. <laughs> that makes me feel like, okay, good. Those who should have seen, those who would have understood all that is happening right in front of them, reject. So the king, God, invites others, both good and bad. You see, those previously, who, those who previously had the invite were called to come enjoy in faith, enjoy the provision of God. It has been taken away, and the king invites are being given to those and here's the kicker, those who will heed the invitations. Those who will say, oh, I, I, I'm invited to, 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 to feast with the king? You see, it is those who are actually a part of the kingdom 
of heaven. Those who heed and respond and trust the king. Those who feast upon the provision of the king. Those are the ones who are actually a part of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones who will feast with the king good and bad. You see, the kingdom of God is full of people who are good and bad. What's the difference? It's not in how good or how bad they are. The difference is in their response to the invitation. The difference is the faith that heeds and trusts the invitation of God. It's the faith that compels him to go, I will trust and feast on his provisions. I do not want to miss feasting with the king. It doesn't make any difference how good or how bad you are. And for some of us in the room, that's really good news. It's in the faith and trust to go and heed the invitation. There's a big clarity being made here. This is a really big clarity being made here about those who are actually a part of the kingdom of heaven, or make it plain, those who are believers, or let me make it more plain, those who are saved, or let me make it more plain, those who are Christians. There is a clarity being put forward. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, here it's faith in God. It's going to him, enjoying his provision in Christ. That's the difference. Reject Christ, not a part of the kingdom. Trust God's provision in Christ. Those are the ones who are a part of the kingdom. It's going to him, enjoying that provision in Christ. And I can see you going, yeah, I'm not so sure. You don't believe me? Well, let's read verses 11 to 14 again, just for the sake of clarity. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I'm sure that's clear as it could possibly be to you, isn't it? Amongst these new guests those invited, the king notices that someone does not have the appropriate garments on, which prompts him to ask the question, how did you get in here? This garment must have been essential to entrance into the feast, because without it, the man is cast out into outer darkness. Now, if you don't understand this, and then, of course, the uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is all language of eternal judgment. After all, this is a parable, right? 
This is a parable about heaven. This is a, a parable about the kingdom of God. And even more specifically, a parable about those who are of the kingdom. But it's also a parable of those who reject the kingdom, all wrapped up in just one beautiful story. This language is a clear indication of what's at stake, eternal judgment. The garment in this particular instance, it is what makes the difference. Well, naturally, the question is, what is the garment? Well, it's been plain to see that up to this point, right, we've seen rejection of God's invitation to come enjoy his provision, his feast, right? We've seen that lead to judgment. Reject God's provision to come enjoy the feast, that brings judgment. Now we're seeing a judgment happen again because of a proper garment is not worn. So we've seen that reject God's provision. We're now seeing don't have the right garment, and all of this leads to judgment. It leads to outer darkness. The nuance is incredible here. It, it's just amazing the clarity that Jesus is bringing before them. Do they understand it? Well, I'm not sure. But the nuance is really incredible. First, it is so plain. Reject the feast is to reject the provision of Christ. That seems to be just what's so obvious there. Reject the feast. Reject all the provisions, right? The second invitation, I, everything's ready. <laughs> just come eat. It seems that you reject the feast, you're rejecting the provision that is in Christ. What does that mean? Well, you're re rejecting the provision of Christ as the means by which you are saved. Reject him as the way we feast with God. As we become God's people, reject Christ, and that brings judgment. You see, the people of God had the invitation all along. They had the goods. They had the information. They had the past history of God's faithfulness. And now is the time through Christ to come feast. But they reject. But they reject. That is so plain in that first section. And what does that result? No fellowship with God. No salvation. Secondly, this other judgment that is being laid out, and the nuance here is really interesting, isn't it? Secondly, Jesus is saying, don't be fooled. He's even clarifying more of what he's getting at. He says, don't be fooled. Some who are at the feast might seem on the surface to have the right to be there, but they are still not clothed in the right garment. See how that might just probe at someone's heart in a unique way. Oh, parading around as if you belong here? See, if those listening hadn't quite got it, well, this one's starting to go, ooh, hmm. 
oh, it reject all of God's feasts, I can't feast with him. But here is a, it's a little bit trickier, right? They are there, but not truly there. At this point, it must be that the garment is an allusion to the clear right and privilege one has to feast with God. Right on its very surface, something about the garment is the clear right and privilege that someone has to go and be in this feast with God. To have a garment is something to have outside of yourselves, right? They must be clothed in the garment. Here it doesn't take much to see that this has to be pointing to the good works of Christ. To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the only garment worthy to be worn at the feast. It's signifying, oh no, I am covered in the garment, which is the only reason I can be here right now. See, there's no mistaking. Reject the provision, you don't feast with God. Don't come in to the provision, thinking you can get in without this garment. It seems that all that Christ has come to do and has done up to this point and will do will be the only means. It is his work. It is his righteousness that we wrap ourselves in that when someone says, why are you here? You quickly say, oh, the garment. <laughs> oh, I'm here because of me, right? The me, 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 me. No, it's, no, no, no. It's just a garment. Like, this is the only reason I'm here right now. See how the, this nuance is desperately needed for the religious elite listening. Jesus is saying all that has occurred, all that has been promised is, is becoming to be fulfilled. And you have to understand it is all wrapped up in the provision of Christ. You see, this nuance is really needed for them. It's helping to provide a clarion call, if you will, to say, where does my faith lie? It's in the one in front of me. You see, you feast with God because of his provision in Christ. You feast with God when you are clothed in the righteousness of his son. So the clear implication is don't reject him. You see, you can be clothed in your own righteousness, but I think we're starting to see where that gets you. (laughs) Being clothed in your own righteousness is creating in these people the inability to see that Christ is the provision. That Christ is the one by which they are going to be saved. So being clothed in your own garment of righteousness creates the inability to see Jesus as all that he is. You may be wondering, why is Jesus teaching all this? Why is he seemingly so angry? You know why Jesus is doing all of this and going to great lengths with all these parables? One, to make plain the hearers, to figure out where they are. But he's doing this because he does not want them to perish. You see, out of both results, judgment comes. Rejecting the provision of Christ, not wearing the garment, 
brings total, utter destruction. See, Jesus wants them, he wants them to prepare. If not now, you better get prepared. (laughs) If you're not going to receive it now, well, you better get prepared to trust God's provision in me. You see, because though it might seem odd that the next few chapters of Matthew, that Christ lays out before them the return of Christ, the judgment to come, it might seem odd unless he wants them, if they're not going to prepare now, that they will in the end prepare before Christ returns. You see, he's almost saying to them, hey, in a few days when you kill me, I will not only raise from the dead, which, by the way, you're not going to believe that either, but I need to just make it so plain. If you're going to reject me now, when I raise from the dead and you're going to reject that, I need you to understand something. I will return. And that return will mean it's too late for you. That's sobering. Jesus does not want them to perish. So what is he saying? Prepare. Don't reject. Final judgment is coming. And we see that in the teaching after this. We see that in the lamps lit, right? Being prepared and ready. If you don't get it now and you reject me now, and at my rising you reject me again, understand I will return. Prepare, prepare, prepare. Don't reject. Why is Jesus going to great lengths to teach all of this? Because he wants none of them to perish. They had all the goods, all the understanding, all the previous history. And they're going to miss it. See, here's how he summarizes all of his teaching on Tuesday. It is a call to trust him. But it'd be pastorally unfair for me to not say it is also a warning. It's a call to trust, but it is also a warning. Here in the last week of his life, he's begging and pleading with them, laying it plain what is to come. And then saying, hey, by the way, if you don't believe it all and I get raised from the dead, hey, just so you know, I'm coming back. So you better get ready because when I come back, it's, it's too late. Listen, I don't have it up on the screen because I just want you to listen to this. Listen as I read one of the last things that Jesus says on Tuesday, right? So all these parables, much like the wedding feast, that moves into final judgment, the return of Christ. And here's how he, one of the last things he says on Tuesday. Chapter 25, uh, starting in verse 31. And this is coming off the, the uh, 10 versions, right? Being uh, your lamp lit and ready. Then the parable of talents, right? Be prepared, be ready. Then he, then he says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. This is, a, this is a big day. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. 
Listen to what he says to these people, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 41. Here's what he says to those on the left. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what he wants them to know. Reject me now. Reject the resurrection. But oh, there will still be a little time. But I am coming. I am coming. And at that moment, it will be too late. It seems that Jesus is saying you are either at the feast or not. You're either on the right or the left. And please, those are not political parties. Come on. If you think that's what he's getting at here, oh my, we need a long conversation afterwards. It's from what I just read. Jesus wants them to know by the end of his teaching on Tuesday, where are you? you. Look at the continual opportunity to trust Jesus. You may reject me now. Maybe at the resurrection, some go, oh, okay. Some still reject, and he says, hey, there's still time, but when I return, you will either be at the feast or not. You will either be on the right or the left. There's, there's no other place. What's the difference? It is all based upon what you do with Christ. That's the difference. What garment are you wearing? Have you constantly rejected the invitation to God's provision in Christ? That's the different brothers and sisters and those visiting with us. You see, the kingdom of God is full of good and bad people. But it's good and bad people not relying upon their goodness and not thinking that their badness puts them too far away. It is both coming to the provision of Christ and in faith and repentance trusting Him. That's the difference. But here on this Tuesday of, la of Jesus' last week, He's wanting them to be clear where they stand. You see, those listening that day are in a state of current rejection Though the invitation is being given to come feast, come be a part of the kingdom of God. But you realize they are also being called to repent and in faith trust Christ and prepare because final judgment will come. Don't believe me now? Well, hopefully after the resurrection you'll believe me. You see, what will go down in a few days brings salvation. But what will go down at the final return of Christ will bring judgment. Be prepared. Don't reject Christ. He is the provision. Don't miss him, brothers and sisters, and those visiting with us. Don't miss Christ because you're so consumed with your own self-righteousness. That garment doesn't stand a chance at his wedding feast. Do you realize that garment is not nearly as glorious? 
to be in that room. That garment pales in comparison to the beautifulness of the righteousness of Christ. This morning, can you hear clearly both the encouragement but yet the warning? Don't miss Christ because you are too blinded by your own self-achievements. Surely he's got to receive me. I'm a pretty good person. But I've done well. I can tell you that garment isn't as beautiful. <laughs> it's not as intricately woven and wonderful as what Christ has done. Don't miss Christ because you are too enamored with your own intellect. Oh, you long-time church-goer. It's one thing to be in this room, but it is another thing to trust Christ as the only provision to feast with God. Perhaps that's hard to hear, but that nuance is necessary to hear. It's one thing to be in the room, and it's another thing to actually trust Christ as the only provision to feast with God. This morning, in a message like this, it behooves us to say, I hope the Lord has made it plain where you sit. Do not leave this moment without grabbing myself, Jared, our other pastor, or a friend close by you. We here at Light in the Desert Church love Christ. And we have nothing else to give you than him and him alone. This morning through the preaching of God's word, as feeble as it has been, uh, the best attempt to lay before us, if God has worked, praise the Lord. If you're with us this morning and you don't know the glorious provision of Christ, praise the Lord, you're with us. If it's clear where you stand this morning, do not leave these moments without talking to someone. We will be available. You'll see us around. Grab us, please. Let's pray. Father God, your word is certainly directed. <laughs> Father, your word is exactly what we need this morning. We don't need all the wonderful fanfare or the most articulate <laughs> message. What we need this morning and what Jesus was doing that day is to trust him as our only provision. Father, I pray that for some, maybe that's a moment of rejoicing because of all that Christ is. But, oh, Lord, as we said earlier, that was prayed, that, that maybe someone this morning has been wearing the wrong garment, has trusted in the wrong thing, and, and maybe this morning it has been clear where they sit. Oh, Spirit, would you work on their hearts? Would you convict them to come and talk? Father, thank you for all that we have in Christ, and we rejoice in him this morning. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.